G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. In episode 62 today, we'll explore a fascinating story of an English convict named William Buckley, who lived amongst the First Nations people here in Australia for 31 years. He rejoined the white society later in his life and eventually shared his story, giving those interested valuable insights into the Aboriginal world at that time. Living amongst the Wathawurrung people around the western side of what we know today as Port Phillip Bay in Victoria, he experienced their culture at a time before the impact of colonialism had taken its toll and forced great change. His experiences and recollections were written up and published around the mid-1800s. So this episode and the following will focus on some of the interesting cultural norms that Buckley observed so that we can get a bit of a picture ourselves about the life amongst the Wathawurrung at that time. In this first episode, we'll look at how Buckley came to join the Wathawurrung Society and how he began to settle into a life with them. Before I start, though, I'd like to thank Ralph F., Danielle H., and Steve J. for their generous contributions to keeping this podcast independent and on the air. As a labour of love, the costs can add up, and I really do not want to go down the path of including ads, so your assistance certainly helps. As I said in your thank you letters, I'm really happy that you enjoy the work so much too. All right, on to the Buckley story. William Buckley's story has been told a number of times, including in other podcasts that I enjoyed, so I was not initially going to cover it myself, but I recently came across an excellent new book by Robert Larkins that retold the story sympathetically to Buckley and included a great deal of detail about not just Buckley's experiences, but about the Wathawurrung people who took him in, and about some of the social and cultural practices that were in place and which Buckley observed and was able to participate in, to some extent. It illustrates a time before the people of the Kulin nation had any substantial contact with Europeans, and before any of the changes that were to come with colonisation had taken place, and so Buckley's absorption into such a different and fascinating society over a 30-year period was particularly interesting to me. He will, of course, have witnessed a whole generation of his adopted clan being born and growing into adulthood. As one of the very few Western men to experience such a life, surviving and thriving, I think the story indicates he was himself a rather interesting and special person for his era. After his initial fear, anxiety and even revulsion to aspects of the culture and behaviour of those he encountered, He seems over time to have approached observing and learning without the usual arrogant and superior attitude many other newcomers displayed. He respected the rules as he came to know them. He helped in the communal chores as soon as he was capable and approached their differing moral, spiritual and social mores with interest rather than judgment. And this allowed him to understand some of what made these people able to live so successfully for tens of thousands of years in a country that proved over and over again hostile to newcomers, even marginal to those arriving with shiploads of goods, people, food and supplies. Larkin's book, called The Personal History of William Buckley, Marungaruk Among the First People, is very detailed while being immensely readable. 
I thought it provided a very nuanced exploration of the recorded details we know of Buckley's experience, as well as reflecting on the experiences of the Wathawarrung and other nearby nations, and so made the story even richer and more fascinating for me. I hope you will find it so too. I highly recommend Larkin's book, which I've used extensively, along with the original reminiscences recorded from Buckley himself and the usual additional selection of sources, all recorded for you in the episode reference list on the website. I expect this story will take two or three episodes, so we'll begin today looking at William's background and his early contact with the Indigenous groups, leading to his adoption into one clan in particular. William Buckley hailed from County Cheshire, born in 1780 to a farming family there, and he seems to have been adopted and raised by his grandparents. They arranged a rudimentary education for him, including learning to read, though later in his life he seems to have lost that skill, being described then as illiterate. When he turned 15, he was signed up to a seven-year apprenticeship as a bricklayer, just as the Georgian brick buildings boom was underway. With such a skill, he could have expected a steady, lifelong profession, with the opportunity for setting up his own business in time, a much more lucrative option than the farm might offer. But he was a lad who craved a bit more adventure, and as he later described himself, quote, my uncontrolled discontent mastering my boyish reason, unquote, around 19 he joined the 2nd Cheshire Militia, a voluntary outfit that was focused on home defence. There was not much money in it, but he did get to travel when training, and being part-time he continued in his apprenticeship. Soon, though, with the Napoleonic Wars underway, he decided to ditch the brick-making and sign up for the regular army, where he was assigned to the king's own regiment of foot, which would take him to the front under the dubious command of the grand old Duke of York. <laughs> you know, the very one who marched his men to the top of the hill and marched them down again. He performed very well in the theatre of war, and he was fortunate only to have acquired a minor injury in a campaign which saw thousands of men cut down, though Larkins describes him returning to Britain somewhat traumatised by the experience. Indeed, in future years, he seemed always adverse to violence, perhaps more sensitive to it than one might have imagined for an ex-soldier and an ex-convict, both systems generally tolerant of a great deal of brutality. In March of 1802, he was at barracks when the hostilities formally ended with the French, and he and a friend took the opportunity to celebrate their leave with a bit of a bender over a couple of days. Drinking at nearby pubs and taking the opportunity to get some rather basic and uninspiring tattoos, still a novelty for the hard men of the day then, a fashion recently brought back by sailors from their forays into the South Pacific, Buckley had his initials tattooed on his arm, along with the sun moon, and an image of a creature described as looking like a chipmunk, <laughs> it being a symbol of playfulness and adventure, according to Larkins. He would later have a mermaid tattoo added during his voyage out to Port Phillip, with gunpowder being used for the ink. But celebrations seemed to get further into dangerous territory, quote, which very soon led me to scenes of irregularity and riotous disposition, unquote, including robbing a nearby store, stealing cloth to on-sell. That unwise decision soon turned sour, as the pair were arrested for robbery just a couple of days later. With the items valued at over three pounds, they would be likely to face the mandatory death sentence for their folly. And so they did, in August of 1802. Fortunately for them both, their sentences were commuted to transportation for life instead. 
And that's how Buckley came to make his way to the penal colonies being set up on our side of the world. His experience was quite different to many of the other convicts sent out, though, as the commander of his vessel, the Calcutta, and its accompanying vessel, the Ocean, was charged with setting up a mixed settlement of convicts and free settlers between Sydney and Hobart inside today's Port Phillip Bay. On arrival, the captain seems to have done only the most rudimentary survey of the area, and despite not finding a quality, abundant freshwater supply nearby, for some reason Commander Collins chose to site the new settlement just inside the heads around Sullivan Bay in the present-day Sorrento area. It was felt that a British settlement at Port Phillip Bay, having only been recently discovered by the British, might deter the French from making any such claim in the area. And this was a great fear for the British at the time. So perhaps logistically, being sighted close to the heads made it quite visible and potentially useful for deterring any Frenchies with ambition. Still, though the area was clearly well used by the indigenous inhabitants, the site chosen did not have an obvious suitable water source right from the start. And in an attempt to use the seeping water they could find, they rigged up a number of barrels set inside other barrels with bracken, reeds and grasses in between to act as a filter between them of sorts and buried them into the sandy soil to collect and filter the seeping water and try and produce something drinkable. One officer from the HMS Calcutta noted, quote, We begin to make wells for the daily consumption of water by boring holes in casks and sinking them in the low grounds, even with the surface. This plan answered our purpose as well as could be expected, but the water was brackish, unquote. So, not entirely successful, but of great interest was the discovery of the remains of one of these abandoned water filter barrel systems at Sullivan Bay in 1927 more than 100 years after it was buried. This is now held at the State Library of Victoria, apparently. I can't wait to have a look for it the next time I'm in there. So, while Collins initially set about establishing his settlement there, the lack of water and the unsuitability of the soil nearby for the agriculture they desired eventually meant the settlement had to be abandoned in the end. Indeed, no government settlement eventuated during that period in Port Phillip, even though they later learned of the abundant freshwater Yarra River emptying into the bay in the northeast region. Now, why Collins did not immediately relocate there, once that became known to him some months into their venture, is a mystery to me, except that he seems already to have been, you know, over it, as we might say, by then. When that intelligence came to him in a dispatch from Governor King in Sydney, after he'd sent word asking permission to abandon his settlement attempt, he didn't really have to consider relocating to the Yarra, as King had granted him permission to bug out in the same communication and suggested they might find an easier time of it if they went to the Derwent River in Van Diemen's Land, also a place that they wanted to keep the French from nabbing. So, a settlement that would later become Hobart was now in the offing, and Collins couldn't wait to up-anchor and depart. There, he redeemed himself as a competent site selector by relocating the first camp set up there in an entirely unsuitable place to the other side of the Derwent, around a watercourse that would serve Hobart well into the future. The intention of this scheme was to occupy and colonise the attractive sites for Britain. Unlike the early days of Port Jackson in New South Wales, in heading to Port Phillip, free settlers were brought along and would be granted land. They were expected to establish productive farms with the assistance of accompanying convicts. So those convicts chosen for this project were those deemed non-violent, 
on their first charge rather than dyed-in-the-wool repeat offenders, and those fit and healthy, with useful trades and physical attributes that would be advantageous. Buckley, of course, fitted all those criteria. As a first offender, with no history of violence, having a military background and thus being expected to be able to take orders, and at 23 years old, with bricklaying skills under his belt, and around 6 foot 6 tall, or nearly 2 metres, he was a fine physical specimen. Morgan's book of his narrated life has Buckley recording, quote, The treatment I received on the passage was very good, and as I endeavoured to make myself useful on board, I was permitted to be the greater part of my time on deck, assisting the crew and working the ship. In justice to the officers placed over us, I must say, the treatment all the prisoners received at their hands was far from suffering, as could be expected, unquote. So those selected for this project were well-fed and would have had an even better sailing experience than the usual convicts bound for Sydney or Van Diemen's Land. While the commander was progressive and lenient in his treatment of the prisoners, nothing could be done about the appalling weather that dogged them on the second half of their journey, bringing discomfort and anxiety to all on board, with the worst weather being experienced during the hazardous entry into the only recently chartered Bass Strait and though the final run before passing through the rip at Port Phillip Heads, a lucky wind and tide allowed their passage safely through the heads, arriving to drop anchor on October 10th, 1803. Collins allowed all the convicts to be released without leg irons and the like, but he reminded them of the isolation all around, and the wilds and the dangers surrounding them, that they should stay with the community for their safety, and cooperate to assure the settlement's success, in which they might then expect to have a much more comfortable life than the average convict. Those transported for life could not expect to gain full freedom, but they could expect an early ticket of leave as a reward. We've spoken of the ticket of leave in earlier episodes, if you recall. A sort of parole system where you might live free and independently in the community, but have some restrictions, such as where you could live or travel, for example, but which would be far superior to being fully controlled by the penal system. Buckley's good behaviour and cooperation had already earned him the privilege of being able to build his own shelter from local stone and to live outside the general prisoner compound under canvas, largely unsupervised though he would be working hard, as was everyone else, to get the settlement established. His brickmaking skills and previous building experience were of particular value, and he was involved in collecting soil from the area we know today as Red Hill for brickmaking, for the construction of a storehouse, and more importantly, the building of a secure and hardy armament store. Larkins writes that that building remained standing until the late 19th century, when it was cannibalised and the materials used in other constructions around Sorrento. They all worked hard, and Buckley did his share, but the sandy soil and general environment in the area they had selected was extremely disappointing. After Buckley's exemplary behaviour during the journey, including offering to assist in defending the ships when a military run-in was threatened en route, and by assisting the crew to sail the boat, Buckley was granted even more leniency on the arrival, but despite knowing just how lucky he was compared to the experiences of most other felons, he was still pretty perturbed by his status of being a convict. He later wrote, quote, Being employed about three months, I determined on braving everything, and if possible, making my escape. Perhaps my unsettled nature in a great measure induced this, and that my impatience of every kind of restraint also led to the resolution. Unquote. 
He decided on making his escape in the weeks ahead, rather than putting his head down and working to achieve an early ticket of leave. We know this happened frequently for those who could work and behave well, as he seemed to be able to do, but I guess he was just completely tormented by the loss of his liberty. It seems he wasn't particularly a baddie at heart, not like many convicts with long and clearly criminal inclinations. Indeed, he seemed so embarrassed and shamed by his conviction that he may not even have told his family about it. Certainly, he never saw or communicated with them for the rest of his life. For a convict in the early 1800s, Buckley was leading a fairly comfortable, if hard-working, life, and his decision to head off into the unknown was interesting. As the weeks passed, and the unsuitability of the chosen site became more obvious, the conditions for everyone became precarious. Access to clean fresh water was a constant difficulty, and the poor soil failed to nurture crops and vegetables that would have fed the colonists. The provisions they had on the boats were ever more stale and unpalatable, and some of the colonists were beginning to display symptoms of scurvy. So the environment may have been becoming more uncomfortable, but in such an isolated place, any escape attempt is unlikely to have improved the food and comfort situation for him, so I can't imagine that as much as a motivator. There were abundant food resources in the area, as evidenced by the good health of the local indigenous people, but the colonists would not have recognised the plants as food sources, perhaps, and they seemed incapable of catching or shooting the kangaroo and other game, also failing to successfully catch fish or birds in any useful numbers. The lack of any competent hunting skills amongst the group really put them at a disadvantage. Obviously, the local Bunwarang clans around them were expert at harvesting what they needed from the environment there, but it would seem relations did not allow much exchange of that valuable information that might have helped the new arrivals make better use of the resources around them. Larkin suggests on this eastern side of the bay, encounters and relations with the Bunwarang peoples at least started amicably. However, when the vessel, the ocean, had anchored on the western side of the bay in the days before the Calcutta had arrived, they had shot and killed at least one local warrior, possibly from the Wathawarong nation, in their first encounter, and it's possible word of this had reached the Bunwarong in the east, and they would likely have been wary of the newcomers. Certainly, as the British began moving up the coast and harvesting timber without permissions, and as both groups of people began taking goods from the other's camps without permission, relations became more tense, leading to outright hostility. The developing angst added to Collins's sense of foreboding about the success of their venture. I'm not clear about how much information Collins had about the violence that resulted from the initial landfall of the vessel Ocean on the southwestern side of the bay, but it's highly likely word of the white men had got around, certainly amongst the clans in that area, because when Collins later sent men across the rip to the western part of the bay looking for water, in an area around present-day Geelong, they had very hostile encounters, with bands of warriors indicating they should leave immediately, and further violence ensued. The fearlessness and determination of the indigenous men, possibly Gilijian men, or Wathawarang warriors, despite the loss they experienced against the better-armed British, only served to further convince Collins this area was not a good candidate for white settlement. And this was why he sent envoys to Port Jackson, advising that the settlement attempt at this bay should be abandoned. Larkins records that in the period Collins was in the bay, it was known that three Aboriginal men were killed by the British during that attempt at settlement, and it may be possible that others who ran off, assumed wounded, may also have died afterwards. 
Their situation got worse as they awaited a response from the governor, with people actually weakening from starvation and dying, and in the distress of the failing outpost, discipline amongst the convicts and some of the troublesome free settlers deteriorated. The uncertainty about what might happen encouraged more convicts to consider an attempted escape, imagining making their way up to Port Jackson and jumping a ship to freedom from there. They must not have been aware of the vast distance and difficult environment they would have to contend with. As discussed in previous episodes, most who attempted escape were pretty ignorant of what they were undertaking. They were wildly over-optimistic about their chances, and generally failed to consider what tools and resources they would need to survive, particularly when it was clear how crap they were at surviving as a group, even in a supported settlement, and especially in light of how terrified they all were of the potential cannibalistic natives they had been told were out there in the wilderness. Still, liberty or death, eh? Many thought it worth a go, apparently. Larkins records that of the 27 convicts who tried their luck, absconding from Sullivan Bay, 20 returned, or were found soon afterwards, and were punished, usually by flogging. The seven unaccounted for were assumed to have perished in their attempt. Buckley was amongst those to make that interesting decision, one that would completely reshape his life for the next 30 years and more. The boats, of course, probably the best option for escape of success, remained heavily guarded at Sullivan Bay, so Buckley recruited three companions who would chance a walk to freedom with him. It's possible they planned to try and walk north to Port Jackson, but more likely they thought they might walk west along the coast to find whaling stations they believed might be there. If they could make their way to one, perhaps they might manage to hitch a ride to somewhere else. But there was another possibility, a plan that might get them a boat to use. So they began gathering the items they would need, including food provisions, cooking pots, and even a gun. And while the camp was busy preparing for their own departure to Hobart, Buckley and his companions made a break for freedom on December 27, 1803. A sentry did notice the men making off, and a shot was fired, which debilitated one of their number, but believing he had been killed, Buckley and the other two just kept running into the darkening bush. More marines were sent out after them, but they were not caught, and Collins soon lost interest in having them pursued, despite being particularly annoyed that the privileged Buckley was one of the escapees. He figured, like most other escapees, they would likely return anyway when things got rough out there, or die in the attempt. Buckley's group continued along the bay northwards, despite the weather turning hostile, and by dawn they were pretty confident they were not being pursued. They had their first encounter with an Aboriginal hunting party on the Melbourne side of Mount Martha, and Larkins records Buckley firing the gun in their direction to scare them away, which did seem to work, though he notes the gun itself would hardly have been a threat, as it turned out to be a fowling gun used for small birds, but useless against men, except maybe at very close quarters. Still, the noise of the shot would have reminded the hunters of the damage the white men's weapons had inflicted in previous encounters, perhaps, and heading into the bush was the sensible tactic. Larkins reminds us, if Buckley's plan was indeed to walk to Sydney, at some point they should have stopped simply following the bay around and instead headed further northeast through the bush, or they should have gone around the head of Port Phillip Bay and walked up the east coast. We do not actually know for sure what their plan was, as varying stories were told by survivors, nor do we have any idea if they actually knew where Sydney was in relation to Sullivan Bay, 
or if their navigation skills allowed them to know what direction they were even travelling. But the suggestion is, in fact, they never had the intention of walking to Sydney. Buckley was never completely honest or clear about his exact intentions, probably not wanting to incriminate himself any more than he had to. Larkin suggests the most likely plan was that they would head right around the bay until they reached an area roughly opposite the existing camp, across the narrow heads. Once there, they would light a signal fire, and Collins would need to dispatch a boat to investigate. Perhaps they thought they could overpower whoever was on the boat and use the vessel to sail to Sydney, where they might claim to be shipwreck survivors. Certainly between them they had some rowing and sailing experience, and this does seem to be the most viable plan, and the most likely reason they continued travelling around the wide circumference of Port Phillip Bay and did what they did. In traversing the 164 miles or 265 kilometres to arrive near the heads opposite the Sullivan Bay camp, they would need to make good time to ensure that Collins would not have decamped for Hobart, leaving them without a response to their signal fire. In moving around the bay, the escaped convicts would pass through the country belonging to a number of different Aboriginal nations. Now I must admit to still being a little confused about the nomenclature and structures associated with the different clan, tribe and nation names associated with country, and how they all relate to each other. So I'll just note, most of the country and people Buckley encountered could be identified as land and people of the Kulin Nation, though when he travelled further along the west coast he would have encountered different groups as well. Wiki describes it this way, quote, The Kulin Nation is an alliance of five Aboriginal nations in south-central Victoria, Australia. Their collective territory extends around Port Phillip and Western Port, up to the Great Dividing Range and the Loddon and Goulburn River Valleys, unquote. Speaking five related languages, these nations, belonging to country surrounding the bay, mentioned here in an anti-clockwise direction, are usually known as the Boonwurrung people, the Woiwurrung, or the Wiradjuri people, the Tawngorang people, the Jajawarang, or Jara people, and the Wadharong, or Wadawarong people. I'll put an image to illustrate on the webpage. Spellings and pronunciations of the names vary still further depending on the sources used, and no single source is likely to be completely definitive. Of course, Buckley travelled further west along the coast, away from the bay, through or potentially into the country of the Gadobanud or Kadobanud people, or the Otway tribe, the Gulijan people, or, or Kolak tribe, the Jagan Warung people, and the Gairay Warung or Kero Warung in his western travels. Just for your information, I generally identify the country and clan names for my episodes using the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies map, which again is not intended to be the definitive authority, but gives at least a general accepted idea. Note also that the names used often differ in inflection, pronunciation, <laughs> particularly with my poor skills at speaking any language other than English, and most certainly the spellings can differ too. Given the First Nations peoples had a complicated oral culture rather than recording their language as a written codex, again there is no single definitive source. And even if they had, can you imagine how many alternative spellings would have developed over the tens of thousands of years that they have all interacted across the country? A country larger than a good part of Western Europe? Just try reading something in Old English and check out the spelling options used in those original documents. <laughs> So, today, you might note the clan identified as the Wathawarong in some sources is also recorded as Wathawarong or Watarong, or even other variants. 
but I'll use that first variant throughout for consistency. Larkins explains these five nations are grouped together as the Kulin nation because of the close commonalities of their culture, customs, language, origin stories and spiritual beliefs, along with their patrilineal social structure, where many other nations are matrilineal. He notes that Kulin is their shared word for human beings. It's also worth noting that though they shared a good deal of culture and were neighbours, this did not mean they were always on good terms. Disputes, battles and attacks often occurred as a result of individual disputes boiling over, insults, disputes over women, intentional or unintentional injury and generally bad behaviour, such as trespass, was cause for punishment and payback was a big part of each of their societies. Indeed, they were frequently feuding, but interestingly to the Westerner, Larkins reminds us that they never fought over land. Land was not a thing to seize. It was not something that could be owned or taken over. The people on it belonged to it. Unauthorized entry into each other's country was grounds for dispute. Permissions must be sought and the correct respectful protocols must be observed when traveling through. Buckley and his companions would have no idea about all of this complexity. All blacks would just be blacks to them, probably. But as they journeyed around the bay, they would have noticed some interesting and likely puzzling occurrences. They would have seen patches of grassland that had been recently burnt, something done deliberately to clear scrub and keep new grasses growing, creating those handy open hunting grounds that Buckley would later use hunting with the Wathawarong. But the three escapees seemed incapable of trapping or killing anything that could sustain them. Around the bay, they'd been regularly moving through the wetlands, teeming with water birds, again unable to make much use of such abundance, despite their carried provisions running low. They were able to find some shellfish around the coast as they travelled, but it was becoming clear starvation might do them in before they could see their plans to fruition. They were seeing substantial huts around the Corio area, but as yet they had not had any further contact with any Aboriginal people. Walking on, they finally made it down to the southwestern part of the bay that had vision directly across the water to Sullivan Bay, a site they called Swan Point, possibly just south of present-day St. Leonard's. They must have been relieved to see that the ships were still at anchor there, and they set up some signal flags using their shirts tied to saplings, and lit a fire which they hoped would be seen from across the water. But it was an anxious few days before they finally saw a small boat coming their way to investigate. It can be very rough waters around the entrance of the bay, and it appears that the little boat got caught in a squall about halfway across and actually capsized, though the three men did not see its fate from their viewpoint. Given there are only two men aboard the boat, there is conjecture that perhaps they were in on Buckley's plan and had rowed out alone without permission from Collins. If Buckley's plan was to commandeer the vessel, or if they had all changed their minds and now wanted rescuing back to the settlement, either way their luck had run out. The two poor men aboard the boat were lost, and no further vessel was sent to investigate their fire on the western side of the bay. Buckley and his companions had no idea what had happened out on the water, only that the boat failed to arrive. They kept the fire going in the hope of another investigation, but to no avail. Now they were in trouble, as they had run out of food, and soon they would be abandoned as the only three white men left in the southern part of the colony. If the two ships across the bay finished packing up the failed settlement, they would cast off and sail through the heads for Van Diemen's Land. 
Discussing their options, Buckley's two companions thought their only chance for survival now was to power back to Sullivan Bay as fast as they could and negotiate for limited punishment owing to their ordeal and weakened states. Buckley, though, remained opposed to returning to the authorities, knowing punishment would be severe and that any chance of escape again would be very limited. He recorded, quote, To all their advice and entreaties to accompany them, I turned a deaf ear, being determined to endure every kind of sufferings rather than again surrender my liberty, unquote. He really was taking a massive risk, indeed an almost suicidal one, Buckley insisted he would rather try and survive on his own than return again to the penal system. Surely a death wish in the eyes of the other two, but they just couldn't persuade him to join them in their return sprint to Sullivan Bay. Taking the rather useless gun with them, they left Buckley and headed back around the coast in haste, hoping to get there before Collins departed. Buckley, despite having made his firm decision, soon felt overcome with loneliness and anxiety, relating later, quote, when I parted from my companions, although I had preferred doing so, I was overwhelmed with the various feelings which oppressed me. I was here subjected to the most severe mental sufferings for several hours, and then pursued my solitary journeys." Unquote. His horror of returning to incarceration was greater than the anxiety of being alone in the wilds. Though his resolve was tested once the men departed, he would become the lone, and it must be said incompetent, white man in an unfamiliar environment, with really no chance of rescue expected. He must have understood this risk and decided on liberty or death, as many convicts had done before him. Larkins reminds us of Buckley's survival odds, noting, quote, He faced almost certain death. The resolution that Buckley made to remain by himself in such a hostile environment has found its way into the Australian lexicon. If a person seems to have next to no possibility of success, they are said to have Buckley's chance or Buckley's hope of success. Or more simply, mate, you've got Buckley's, meaning no hope. His companions, in quite a feat of endurance, did make it back to Sullivan Bay after nearly a month walking, quite emaciated and suffering scurvy. They advised the authorities that Buckley had headed off into the mountains and would now be well beyond reach. Neither confessed to any plan to hijack a boat, and why would they confess to such plans, only adding to the punishment coming their way? Soon afterwards, on January 30th, Collins and the ships carrying them to Van Diemen's Land sailed off through the heads. Buckley, if he had witnessed their passage, would have known he was now truly on his own. For the next thirty years, we have only the recollections from Buckley himself to illustrate how he got on. But while we need to consider that they were written by third parties, probably in the desire to make good profit from an amazing story, and so expect that they might record the more sensationalist recollections, these memoirs form what I think is the most interesting part of this story, Buckley's adaptation to living with and participating in the lives of the as yet largely undisturbed Wathawarong people is fascinating. We get some glimpses into some aspects of their culture, day-to-day -day lives, clan relations, and their connections to country, something that would be so quickly disrupted once the colonists came in to settle and enclose their lands. Larkins suggests Buckley might have been entertaining two options once the British left the bay. He may simply have preferred to die there rather than return with the others to a life of servitude, 
or he may have thought he had a good chance of survival if he could reach a whaling station that he had heard about, believed to be somewhere further along the west coast. And I'm with Larkins here. I think that's probably the most likely scenario too. Some of the geographically challenged stories that circulated amongst the convicts, like the bizarre contention that you could walk to China from the colonies, were patently ridiculous. But a whaling station on the coast, permanent or episodic, seemed quite viable. There certainly were whalers operating in the seas off the coast. Larkins does point out, though, that there were no whaling stations along that Victorian coast, though, of course, a large whaling station would be established at Portland mid-century. Sadly for Buckley, the rumours were not yet true. So let's have a look at how Buckley proceeded, according to his own memory. There were several accounts of his story published in the years after he re-entered the colonial society. The one I am using for this episode was the first complete account written, which was authored by John Morgan, a journalist and pamphleteer from Hobart, called The Life and Adventures of William Buckley, 32 Years a Wanderer Amongst the Aborigines of the then unexplored country around Port Phillip, now in the province of Victoria. <laughs> and it was first published in 1852. So to learn what happened, we can look at those narratives written by others, hearing his story, such as Morgan's biography, and those of other biographers and newspaper journalists, but we should treat them all with caution, because they were often written with an eye to sensationalism and sales, as well as being interpreted through their lens of substantial racism and ignorance of the Aboriginal cultures and behaviours that Buckley encountered. Modern authors reassessing these sources usually have a more nuanced interpretation, but certainly the original details recorded are very interesting and most valuable. So the story of his first months alone largely recount his desperate struggle to find water, food and shelter as he made his way along the coast, the area traversed today by the Great Ocean Road in part. He was intensely fearful of encountering Aboriginal people, particularly because the convicts had been so thoroughly indoctrinated to believe that the natives were all savages and cannibals who would be hunting down the white men. Certainly, from his limited contact to date, he knew they could be fearsome, and he had no weapons to defend himself or scare them off this time, having sent the gun back with the other two. But he was also completely discombobulated because of the general unfamiliarity of the environment. For instance, he was particularly alarmed by the frequent howling of the dingoes, which he said left him in terror of, quote, being set upon and torn to pieces at night, and that it added to the wretchedness of my situation, unquote. So on his first night out, alone, sleeping covered in leaves and branches for warmth, his anxiety must have been extreme. In the coming days and weeks, he continued westward, along the coast where he could, and in his recollections he noted good and bad experiences, but had trouble calculating the passing of days, and so we cannot always be sure how long he may have stayed in any one place, or the speed of his travel. He described, as he crossed the Barwon River, seeing further down towards the mouth of the river a big clan of about a hundred natives who were building bark shelters, indicating they were intending to stay, and so he kept well inland for a while, hoping to avoid any contact, before making his way back to the coast. He later found what would have been abalone, which he called muttonfish, or later the Aboriginal term kuduru. Further along, he records passing many abandoned huts, so he expected there were natives nearby in the region. In travelling with the local people in the years that followed, he learned how they would move across their country, staying in various places in temporary or permanent shelters for various periods, depending on the seasons and the availability of food. 
In many places, he mentions he had no access to fresh water, and this was a frequent concern, not knowing when he would next find a source once he left a spring or a river, adding dying of thirst to his anxieties. Proceeding west past present-day Anglesey, with no whaling station yet in sight, the coast became more rugged, cliffs often terminating at the coast, and he was having to make his way across sections further inland to make progress. It was more exhausting making his way through the bush, and it took him away from the potential shellfish which was sustaining him. He made it past Payne Calac Creek, and Larkins reminds us that around here he would have been leaving the country of the Wathawarong, with whom he had not yet made contact, and moving into Gadibunit country. Along the way, he had seen evidence of what was once called fire stick farming. The local people would manage their land with regular small-scale burning to control undergrowth and promote the regrowth of new grass, creating park-like settings which would be excellent hunting grounds as the animals returned. In this area, he came upon the remnants of another recent burn and was able to gather another fire stick he could carry for his use. Getting fire sticks was often not too difficult if any clans were nearby, as they relit the fires at burial sites and did regular burns to manage the countryside growth, and trees which might smoulder for days could provide an ignition source for a fire stick. So that was a fortunate happenstance for Buckley. He soon found an area with a good water supply and shellfish nearby, and even discovered a small cave for shelter. He decided to stay a while, to rest and regain some strength. Larkins suggests this site was around present-day Airlie's Inlet, and just as well, because he had often gone days without food, and his body had begun showing signs of malnutrition, such as sores and aches. It must have been very unpleasant, no doubt affecting his state of mind, too. He moved on again, making his way through thick, very damp and cold forest, part of the Otways, which at that time extended right down to the cliff edges of the coast, and was struggling to make progress further west. In a place Buckley recorded with the Aboriginal name Nuraki, probably near Wai River, he discovered an area of cliff edge that allowed access to the beach, with fresh water running nearby and abundant shellfish. It also had plenty of a ground-covering plant he had been eating. Larkins thinks it was probably the plant we know as pigface, which likely would have helped in warding off scurvy. He managed to keep the fire stick alight and could make himself a fire for warmth and cooking, so after his privations and perilous journey so far, it must have looked like a comfortable place of plenty. Weary and still weak, having travelled from the convict camp to this point more than 200 miles or 300 kilometres, he decided this time to settle and rest there for an extended period. Really, he had done very well just surviving alone in this foreign land all that time, with no provisions, materials, tools or weapons. I mean, it must be exhausting just trying to wrestle shellfish from the rocks without a handy screwdriver. When he found himself amongst this relative abundance, you can see how it would have been a relief to stop. If there was a whaling station further along, he could get to that when he was in good and strong again. He built a shelter out of tree branches and scrub, and used seaweed to insulate it. Now comfortable, he settled in for a few months, rebuilding his strength. Now it's worth noting, he says in his memoir, that by now he was having trouble keeping track of time, wondering if his recollections denoted days or weeks or even months, but it seems like he was here for a couple of months, given how settled he became. He recalls pondering at some point that perhaps he would just in fact remain here, rather than resuming his search for the elusive, 
and as it turns out, non-existent whaling station, saying, quote, I remember a fancy coming over me that I could have remained at that spot all the rest of my life, unquote. So on that day, at least, he was getting comfortable with the prospect of living the remainder of his life solitary in this new world. It was after a couple of months settled there that he had his first face-to-face -face encounter with the local indigenous people. One day he heard men above him on the clifftop. They had seen his shelter and must have been curious about who was on their country, and they came to investigate. Buckley, still terrified of the likely outcome of contact, hid, but eventually had to show himself. The men, probably Gajibunlet men, draped in warm possum-skin cloaks, were armed with spears, but they showed no signs of hostility. Nor did they appear to have any fear of Buckley, displaying instead curiosity at this strange pale man with some unusual body coverings. The men were of a similar height to Buckley, so his stature itself would not have been of much interest, but being so pale-skinned and still being clad in the tattered remnants of his camp clothing, he would have been quite the oddity to them. Word would have got around about the white men at Sullivan Bay, even if these Gadibunnet men had no previous contact themselves, and they seemed very interested in him. Alarmingly to Buckley, they began some kind of startling ritual greeting, which he would see again many times as he came into contact with other groups. He described the men as beating their chests and then beating his while various communications were attempted. They then entered his shelter, uninvited, <laughs> as he recorded, and settled in. One man dropped his cloak by the fire and then waded into the sea, grabbing a crayfish, which he brought back and threw straight onto the fire. Buckley was amazed, and when cooked they divided the delicious meat between them. Buckley noted that he had been offered the, quote, first and best portion, unquote. He must have been absolutely delighted with such a feast, albeit eating it nervously amongst his generous but uninvited company. When it was time to depart, they signalled that Buckley should accompany them. He was reluctant, but feeling outnumbered, felt he had little option, so off they all went, two men ahead of him and one behind. After walking inland a substantial distance, they arrived at a settlement site dotted with permanent huts. Larkins describes these as stone dwellings, rendered in turf, and I wonder if perhaps they were something like those reconstructed around the Bidjbim World Heritage Site in the west. And as the evening drew in, he was directed into one of the huts, accompanied by one of his companions, where he slept fitfully, feeling very uneasy throughout the night. In the morning it became clear he was expected to follow the men further inland, but he had no idea what it was all about, and by then he was feeling a little more confident, so he just refused to go. He noted they made a lot of gestures, appearing to insist, but in the end they didn't force him though somehow they made it clear to him that they wanted him to stay put where he was. Of particular interest to these men were his manky old stockings, and one of them indicated they wanted to have them. Who knows exactly why they were so attractive? Obviously his clothing by then would have been very much worse for wear, but perhaps as a manufactured object, unseen by the Gadibunnet men before, they had some novelty value to them, no doubt. But again, bolstered by his survival, despite balking at travelling any further with them, and even after being offered berries in return for the items, he also refused to hand over the socks. So off they went, without him, or his socks in the end, signalling that he should stay right there at the hut site. As soon as they left, though, he was off. He didn't see them again. Larkins reminds us that, being excellent trackers, they would have been able to search him out, 
had they really wished to find him again. But Buckley probably would not have known about those skills at that point, and he just tried to make his way back towards the coast, putting distance between the men and himself. Being a good way inland, with no skills to track back along the path they'd used to get him there, though, he had great difficulty finding his way back to his original place of shelter. He foundered around for many days, sometimes lamenting that perhaps he should have stayed with his new friends. <laughs> Becoming weaker and more desperate, cold, hungry and thirsty, he reflected, quote, the minds of the strongest men will fail under such circumstances, unquote. But he did eventually make his way back to the beach again, settling in with perhaps a little less foreboding of the next encounter. Some time later, he noticed a man and his family fishing nearby, and they stayed in the area for some time, having limited but uneventful interactions with Buckley, until they too moved on. Buckley at first would have had no idea that the First Nations society was so complex, with a great number of different tribes and clans sharing various resources and caring for different areas of country, bound to perform specific rituals and protocols according to the laws that had to be observed. Their way of life was so different to his Western understanding that for a long time he could not even recognise many of the cultural practices being enacted around him. He would have had no idea that for the Kajibana the beach season was finishing and the clans would move inland to winter shelters in areas where winter food and other resources could be sourced, and to his detriment he stayed on the beach, getting colder and more uncomfortable as the food supplies there ran out the season change. Larkins notes that Buckley would have no idea how refined their lifestyle practices were. They would move through the seasons to ensure they were living in the appropriate part of the country for access to seasonal food supplies, staying sometimes in temporary or more permanent shelters as appropriate. Such a lifestyle necessitated no fencing or intensive farming and provided them with a variety of food and other resources throughout the year, generally ensuring their diets were nutritious and varied. With no knowledge of the country and its resources, nor any bushcraft skills, Buckley thought he would simply stay put where he was. But doing so meant another decline in his health. The berries and other seasonal plants he had been eating were finished, and even the seafood was harder to come by. He was soon to find himself again on the edge of survival. Starving once again with no whaling station where he expected it to rescue him, and fearing he could not survive much longer on his own, he thought he should perhaps make the long trek back to Sullivan Bay campsite, just in case a passing vessel should call there to investigate. That might be his only chance. And so he began retracing his steps, bringing him back into Wathawarong country. On walking through today's Torquay region, he was becoming ever weaker and experiencing bitter cold, but he was to discover an item that would ensure his survival though he was not to understand how or why for some time. Near Dunangawan, or Spring Creek, he described coming across, quote, a mound of earth with part of a native spear stuck upright in the top of it, to indicate it being a grave. I took the spear out and used it as a walking stick to help me on my journey, unquote. Further along, he found he had to ford what was now a flooded creek, and being so weak, it proved to be very difficult Though struggling, he kept hold of the prized spear and finally emerged exhausted, collapsing on the opposite bank, and he remained there as darkness fell, wondering if he would even survive the night. In the morning, in a very chilled and weakened state, he searched around for food nearby but found nothing he could recognise, and once again he collapsed there on the ground, probably nearing the end of his ability to progress. 
Fortunately for him, a couple of Aboriginal women had been watching him that morning. After he had collapsed there, exhausted, they returned to their camp to tell the men what they had seen. When they came to investigate this pale man, Buckley was still there on the ground, clearly very weak and no threat, and they noticed that he had the broken spear with him. He records the men then approached him and grasped his hands, and beating their chest as the Gadavanad men had done in the months past, actions that were inexplicable and frightening to Buckley, but which were a sort of greeting. The women and men who had found him were a small group from the Walaranga clan of the Wathawarong people, and he could not have been luckier that it was they who came across him. The women helped him to walk to their nearby camp and gave him water and food, including witchetty grub, quote, and by this time so changed was my palate that I ate them, thinking them delicious, unquote, and which would have been full of useful calories for a man in his starving condition. Despite their obvious kindness and care, he recorded remaining terrified of being roasted and eaten by the cannibal savages. <laughs> the false propaganda espoused by the convict settlements being so strongly ingrained. When the women of the camp started up wailing and tearing their hair, inflicting cuts and burns on themselves, he was even more horrified and frightened. He could not fathom what it all meant. But even so, as he was led to the shelter encouraged to rest, he was so exhausted that even in the midst of all this bizarre and rowdy activities around him, he allowed himself to rest and records that he slept comfortably for the first time in a long time. It's probable, as a white man who was perceived as no threat, he might still have got some assistance from the many local Aboriginals he might encounter, as had been the case with the three Garobunad men and the family he encountered on the beach but he was about to experience some very special and privileged treatment amongst the Wallawaranga, though it would be a while before he understood just why. He wrote, quote, I learned afterwards that they believed me to be a black man who had died some time since and who had come again to them in the shape of a white man, having the remains of his spear with me confirmed them in this opinion, unquote. Their dead clansman had been a revered warrior, who'd been killed in some inter-clan fighting and was buried with his broken spear placed on the grave. When his mob saw Buckley flailing about in the weakened state with the spear, the people thought Buckley, to be the dead man, returned to the living from the spirit world and weakened from his ordeal. In this reincarnation of sorts, having come back to the world, he would have been seen somewhat like a newborn and this would later account for the patience they showed towards his obvious ignorance of their ways and of their language. The Wallaranga clan members had a duty to help him recover and grow, developing his language and cultural skills, as you might coach a small child. Larkins notes the wailing and the self-harm practices he had witnessed the people displaying were consistent with their rituals related to grief, empathy, and even joy at his return, and in acknowledging the pain he must have endured crossing from one world to another. The Gutterbunnet men who discovered him previously were friendly enough. Certainly they seemed happy to share food with him and negotiate. The Wallarunga clan of the Wallawarung people, though, saw him as one of their own, someone special and highly respected, as a reincarnated warrior, he would hold a special place in their community. The early days of this encounter saw Buckley very well cared for, but he maintained a wary anxiety about his safety for some time. 
particularly each time a celebration was held, which was often in those early times, as they were so delighted to have their warrior return to them, even if he was now a little simple. <laughs> Initially, Buckley had absolutely no understanding of his honoured place in their thinking and what was going on around him, which he found alarming as well as simply amazing. Buckley recorded a number of other interesting goings-on. The group coaxed him onwards past present-day Bowen Heads to join their larger community at Lake Konoware, Konoware meaning swan in their language. He was still apprehensive of their intentions, imagining he might still become a sacrifice or a meal. <laughs> Neither were activities that the Aboriginal people indulged in, only being a fearful imaginative assumption spread by the ill-informed whites. At their arrival, hundreds of people surrounded him, and many began wailing and beating their heads and bodies again, causing bleeding, the same grieving actions he witnessed the day before amongst the smaller group. Two of the men who had travelled with him stayed by him at the new camp, ensuring that he was comfortable and he had food and water, and they seemed to want to show him around the village. The huts at this place were made of wood with bark roofs, and once again he was encouraged to rest in one. Looking out, he could see camp members preparing a very large fire, and this set him to thinking it might not bode well for him. When his companions came to rouse him out, he recalled having an awful dread that they must have been taking him out, quote, probably to roast me, unquote. In fact, he was about to be the guest of honour at a massive corroboree. The women were adorned with white body clay and emu feathers around their waists, and the men were painted with white and red designs. He noted some had painted circles around their eyes and stripes down their cheeks, giving them a very stunning look. Some had strips of possum fur around their biceps, and many wore necklaces. Some men approached the ceremonial area carrying large clubs, and others with clapsticks. Some of the women sat with their possum-skin cloaks stretched over their legs, and Buckley was surprised to note they soon began beating these as drums while the men entered, adding to the rhythm using their clapsticks to accompany their singing. These must have been thrilling and extraordinary sights and sounds for poor old Buckley. He estimated the corroboree lasted around three hours, ending with him being welcomed into the clan with the now familiar welcoming action of chest-beating. <laughs> After more feasting, he retired with his original companions back to the hut, and while still pretty confused, he now felt safer at least, beginning to understand he was a guest, and he reported again resting well. In the morning, he noted the people going about their chores, digging up Moranong tubers or catching eels, and all greeted him warmly as he wandered around. Quote, By this time, I was greatly relieved in my mind, finding no injury to me was contemplated. I evinced a desire to make myself useful. Unquote. He collected water, which was being transported in wooden or bark vessels or in pouches made of animal skins. Then he helped collect wood. Luckily, he was of a helpful disposition. As he had done on the voyage out and at Sullivan Bay Settlement, he willingly did his share of the work required. It was not the work, but the lack of self-determination that caused him to object to custody. He did not appear to display the arrogant kind of racist or religious superiority that other white men of his era may have thought appropriate to manifest amongst such savages, and this attitude would have helped him begin to open-mindedly comprehend the structure of the society he was now in, and to form harmonious bonds in the clan, joining in and helping with the chores. The following day, more members of the wider tribe arrived at the site, 
and Buckley was soon to learn why he was being so sympathetically regarded. He was introduced to a family that had just arrived and was made to understand, quote, the man was the brother to the one who had been killed, from whose grave I had taken the spear, unquote. The brother, Nullaboyne, was a very important man, a clan head, and his family were very moved to see Buckley in their midst. There was more hand-holding and chest-beating. He learned that the man they had buried with a spear was called Moorengurk, and he realised they had been calling him Moorengurk since they first found him. In Kulin culture, the names of the dead are no longer spoken, so naming him indicated they actually saw him as their brother returned from the dead, and certainly they continued to treat him as a very special person. He understood, quote, To this providential superstition, I was indebted and nothing could exceed the kindness they had shown me. To them, I was a living dead brother whose presence and safety was their sole anxiety, unquote. He reported another corroboree taking place with all the newcomers, and his care was transferred to his family, Buckley then staying with them in their hut. He was delighted by a feast of possum and baked murinol, noting that the possum, quote, was the first animal food I had taken since parting with my companions from the Calcutta, and to me it was the most delicious feast, unquote. And in a gesture of great generosity, he was given his own possum skin cloak. Larkins reminds us how precious these items were, being extremely labour-intensive to make, each individually decorated with symbolic patterns. So this was a very exceptional gift, indicating his high honour. I believe the Melbourne Museum currently has a beautiful Kulin Nation possum skin on display. Buckley at least seemed to appreciate the generous mark of affection and respect this had signified, and he wanted to give a gift in return, but he only had his tatty old convict jacket to offer, which he did give to his new sister-in-law, and he recognised how this exchange had great effect in cementing our family acquaintance. Understanding then he was being taken into this clan as an honoured person, and saw his immediate future at least with this adopted family, he was eager to make every effort to, quote, be careful not to give offence in the smallest thing, unquote. And this attitude was an uncommon one amongst the whites who found themselves taken in by the first Australians in those early years. Such a respectful, long and successful association was a rare thing, and perhaps it was Buckley's particular open-mindedness which ensured that he would be able to blend in. So we'll finish there for today and take up the story next episode as Buckley takes his place in his adopted clan and learns how to live like a local. Now my podcast recommendation this episode is a series currently on hiatus but with a great back catalogue to listen to. The writer and journalist Michael Adams actually produces a couple of podcasts but the one I'm suggesting today is called Australia on This Day. Michael presents Australian stories that made headlines and sometimes made history. Have a look at the range of news stories he's taken a very interesting dive into. As always, I'll place a link to the Australia On This Day podcast details on my webpage. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and my contact details can be found there also. Now I'll get working on part two of Buckley's stories right away. <laughs> Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.